Our sermon text today comes from the book of Jude, the only chapter of Jude, verses 5 through 7. Jude, verses 5 through 7. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their position of authority, their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he, Jesus, has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and all the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. They serve as an example. They serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a a heavy, difficult text full of hard things that we don't like to talk about, but they're in the word, and we chose to go through Jude, so we're going to wrestle over these words together. So let's pray together, bow our heads, and ask God, ask that spirit to come and illuminate this truth to our hearts. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have saved us. We thank you that you have made us into a family by the power of the blood of Jesus and the strength of his spirit. We thank you that your word has transformed our hearts, renewed our minds, and you are daily making us a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. God, we thank you that you have transformed us from darkness to light. You have made us children of the most high God, But sometimes we have questions, God. Sometimes we're afraid. Father, we're confused and we need your help. We ask you right now, would you illuminate the truth of these words to strengthen us, to help us walk by faith, to endure through this life, and to make us useful as we are called to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. May Jesus be honored in our time together through this word and through our receiving of it. Amen. So, earlier this week, I had determined that I was going to become a great drummer like Jake Rankin. My sons have been interested in drumming, and I thought, I'll just jump right ahead of them and and nail this thing. So, one morning, I, I got ready for work, and I came into the office. I snuck into the sanctuary, picked up some drumsticks, I put on my favorite rock tune, and I was like, I'm going to shred this thing. I'm going to get my foot going along with and waiting for the solo, and I'm going to go at it. And it was just a disaster. I quickly became discouraged as I proceeded to embarrass myself in front of nobody but myself, realizing I can't keep a steady beat just with one foot on that bass drum. I don't know what to do with all the other appendages I have while I'm drumming. 
So apparently, becoming proficient in something doesn't happen all at once. It takes discipline, commitment, striving day after day to make the hard choice to keep pressing on to get better. But not only does becoming great at something not all happen at once, so also does destroying your life not happen all at once. A good man doesn't just wake up one day and go, you know, today I'm going to commit adultery and plunge his life into ruin. A, a virtuous woman doesn't go about her normally holy, peaceable life and then find herself one day under ten tens of thousands of dollars of credit card debt, financially crippling her family for years. A wise businessman doesn't skillfully build a, a, a successful company that blesses the community, providing jobs and services, and then one day decide, today I'm going to start evading taxes and embezzling money and destroying his company and all of the livelihoods of his employees. No, the fall doesn't happen after the spectacular sin. It happened long before in the heart of those who doubt God's goodness, who felt entitled to their own desires and embrace their own passions. The spectacular sins came about because they refused to contend against the subtle sins that lead to judgment. Last week, Jake introduced us to this book through verses 3 and 4, and the emphasis on it is to contend for the faith. We are supposed to be fighting for the gospel, battling against sin, pushing back against the narratives of the culture. We strive for one another's souls against every false idea that wants to creep in unnoticed. Now today, Jude is going to show us how subtly these things sneak into our lives and how disastrous the consequences are if we don't see them and fight back. Jake had mentioned last week that our cities, so many of our western cities, are filled with churches that are just dead and rotting because they did not contend for the faith, and that is so tragic. But that should not cause us to boast in ourselves and in pride thinking, well, we're avoiding that. We're a solid gospel-centered church. It should humble us to realize that could happen too. There was a group of people 60 years ago who started a church in this building, and they no longer exist. We need to battle. As Jude says here in verse 5, he needs to remind us of something that we should all already know. And if we don't listen up, it will not just be tragic that this building is empty and handed on to someone else and we have lost our generational witness, but it'll be disastrous for our own souls. So Jude is telling us to contend against the subtle sins that will inevitably lead to destruction. Contend against the subtle sins that lead to judgment. In these three verses, he uses three images from biblical history to remind us how serious God is about sin. So first in verse 5, he wants us to contend against doubt, recalling the story of God saving Israel from Egypt. And then he moves on to a little bit more confusing story in verse 6 
about angels rebelling against God, telling us that we must contend against pride. And finally, in verse 7, Jude reminds us of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah to warn us that we need to contend against lust. In all these things, he's telling us sin is really sneaky. And Jesus will really judge it. So let's return to verse 5 again with a look at Israel to remember to contend against doubt. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out from the land of Egypt, even though he saved them, afterward he destroyed those who did not believe. So you'll notice throughout this letter that that Jude, like all other New Testament authors, is quick to make these references back to Old Testament stories. Some of them Jude uses are even quite obscure. And his arguments aren't going to make sense unless you know your Bible. So when he says this quick one-off sentence, your mind is filled with imagery from the story of the Exodus. That's why we went through the whole book of the Bible in a year to put those images in your mind. So now, when, you realize, when he does this, you realize that he is pointing to Old Testament stories to call something that you need to live out today. And Jude starts with where most biblical authors spend their time, right, in the story of the Exodus. It's like the defining story of the whole Bible. The birth of Israel through the Red Sea as God saves them from Egypt. Remember that story? God or Israel, was under the oppressive thumb of Pharaoh in Egypt. But they still grew into a great nation. And through Moses, God led them out through dramatic signs and wonders. Incredible experience. How could you forget it? How could you doubt God after he shows ten mighty plagues that just weaken the mightiest empire on earth? And then he leads the people out into the wilderness. They don't know where they're going, but they have a giant pillar of clouds and fire leading them through, protecting them from the enemy. And they get to the Red Sea, and they don't know what to do, and God parts the sea so they can walk right through it to avoid the charging Egyptian army. All of it comes to this dramatic conclusion as God judges Egypt for their sins by burying them into a tomb of deep water. The people of Israel were finally free. Or so they thought. Jude draws attention to the forgotten part of the story, which is really the rest of the story. In each of these three examples, Jude is setting up for us God's grace towards a people, their surprising response, and then his, the result of his judgment. In the story of Israel, we see that this judgment didn't end with Egypt entombed in the sea. Jude says Jesus destroyed those who came through the Red Sea and continued to not believe. How could you? That just all that stuff you just saw and experienced. They thought they were free from oppression. They thought the problem was outside of themselves, but they didn't realize the oppression was internal. 
It was their own subtle sins that was leading them to their own destruction. Sure, they were caught up in the excitement of the moment, the context of all the suffering they were experiencing. They were eager for someone to come and rescue them. And then all these plagues happening, their oppressor being brought low. Oh, great, this, this Yahweh might be useful to us to get us out of this pickle. God solved their immediate problem. It did take some measure of faith to actually get up out of the only home you and your family ever knew, stuff some bread into your pockets and walk out into the wilderness. Sure, that was some kind of faith, but it wasn't an appropriate faith. Because as soon as they passed through the Red Sea, they grumbled and complained. They weren't actually believing Yahweh and his plans for their lives. They were just using him to accomplish what they wanted. So... Jude tells us, and as we read in Numbers, God destroyed them. Once, once they turned against him, he ended their faithlessness. So what's Jude's lesson for us in this? Well, first of all, he's telling us, don't be complacent. Don't think that just because you are here associating with the people of God, and maybe you had some spiritual experience, emotional experience, that you are truly a believer. Some people come to church because they think, well, I've messed up. I should go there where right things happen. And they're having a difficult life and the context is just making them weak and vulnerable. And you come in and you meet all these wonderful, nice, kind people singing in rapturous praise. And you think, oh, I'm good. This is a good place. I'm satisfied here. I'm good with God now. But there is no cheap grace. There's no saying, well, I prayed a prayer. I, I went to church. I made a deal with God so him and me were good. No, God's salvation demands nothing less than your entire life devoted to him and to his work among God's people. You see, really what's going on at the heart of unbelief is idolatry. Paul cites the same example of Israel and their unfaithfulness in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He warns that unbelief and idolatry go hand in hand. Though they fled the false gods of Egypt, Israel was still not trusting Yahweh. They were actually using him for their own purposes. They tested him. They grumbled and complained. They stood against his ways. They perverted the grace of his salvation. So while I'm free, now I can do whatever I want with my life. But at the root of it all is idolatry. Trusting something other than God to take care of you. Or just using God to fulfill your own purposes, which is making yourself God. But everyone here, you might think, well, I'm immune to that because I believe in Jesus. So I'm good. But remember from verse 4 how these ideas creep in unnoticed. These sins are so much more subtle the idolatrous unbelief starts as just subtle doubt. Now, I'm not saying that you'll, you'll never have questions if you believe. There's all kinds of questions that we are going to have. Faith is not complete knowledge. Faith is not ignoring these paradoxes of Scripture or suppressing questions. 
I hope that we continue to be a church where we love asking questions and digging into the word to find answers. It's one of the most joyful things to do with all of you is explore those questions together. Faith is taking those questions to God, trusting that he has great answers for them all. And he will reveal them in due time through diligent pursuit of his will, through his word, and along with his people. But subtle doubt, on the other hand, whispers into your ear, you can't trust God. There's no answers here for you. You can't trust the people here, especially those leaders. You don't fit in here. Your problems are too big for a church to solve. There's no solution for you. Hanging out with those people is too dangerous for your family. The more you entertain those subtle doubts, the more it grows into blatant, idolatrous unbelief. And ultimately, as Jude is warning us, to destruction. But sometimes, before that destruction comes, it turns into even another subtle sin. This doubt of God's goodness and his ability to care for you leaves kind of a void. I, I need someone to care for me. I acknowledge my weakness, but in our pride, then we turn to our own wisdom and our own strength to solve our problems. This is what we see in the next example. So turn to verse 6. We see how we need to also contend against pride. He says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling place. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, you might not see as clearly the grace that God has given as when he rescued Israel from Egypt, but Jude is assuming that the angels had some great gift from God. They'd already received much. They had a great position of authority, a proper dwelling place. Well, what is that place? If you dig through the Old Testament to learn about angels, you see that they are glorious, beautiful, powerful creatures. They were present when God laid the foundations of the earth and they sang for joy and praised God for his amazing work. They were called to battle great armies that threatened God's people. They surround the throne of God, adorning him with praise and honor. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament says at the end of chapter one, angels were made to be ministering spirits to all of God's people. Such a great responsibility and power given them to execute that responsibility. But some abused it. They rejected it. They rejected God's design for them. They didn't stay within their own position of authority. They left their proper role. So think of Satan's fall from heaven. His banishment to the earth. Or think of the demons who led rulers in the Old Testament, rulers of nations, into all kinds of wickedness. Or in the New Testament, you see people who are just tortured, oppressed by demons. 
These angels had become grossly prideful, seeking to make themselves into God and to tear down everybody who represents God, who images him. Because they just can't stand anywhere to look and see something more beautiful than themselves. They pursued their own purpose for their existence. It's the epitome of pride. And God's judgment on them has been eternal. They are in eternal chains under gloomy darkness, Jude says. They've been severely limited in their power, in their influence now. They're just a shell of their former glory. Their power is so limited that they are just like they are walking around in chains awaiting their final destruction when they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Now I read that and I hear this story about angels and I go, what in the world does that have to do with contending for the faith, Jude? You're going to see throughout this book, he makes these obscure references. You're going, where did that come from? What does this have to do with us contending for the faith? Angels are so vastly different than we are. So what's he getting at? Well, this is what we would call an argument from the greater to the lesser. Jude is saying, if God did not spare rebellious angels who are so much more powerful, so much more glorious, had so much more responsibility, he didn't spare them he will by no means overlook our sin either. Here's the lesson for us, that God made us for a purpose too. He has a proper dwelling place for us, a proper role of authority. We are called to reflect his image through our lives, exalt his character in everything we do. But the result of the subtle sin of doubting God is that if I don't think he's that great, then why would I exalt him? Why would I make a big deal out of him? Why would you work hard to show off someone in your life that you don't think that much of? And then in turn, you exalt yourself in pride. You seek to define your own existence, your own identity from what's inside, as Jake taught during Sunday school. Or like Adam and Eve, you see the fruit and you decide what's good to eat, even if God said it's not good. The result of all of these things is destruction. We build nations to glorify our own accomplishments. We accumulate wealth to make a great name for themselves. But God will not have that. And just as subtly as unbelief creeps in, as doubt, pride creeps into our lives. And Jake said last week, remember that these false teachers, you might think, I'm not like that. I'm not that big, boastful, prideful person. But it creeps in. The, Jake said last week, the false teachers aren't coming in with big signs, all capital, bold letters. I'm a false teacher. Anyone want to learn false teaching? Come talk to me. No. They're subtly persuasive, appealing to your fears and your own ambitions. And pride sneaks in and corrupts us long before it comes out as a spectacular fall. It doesn't always look like someone boasting, I'm the best. Trust me, believe me, I know the best. I'm the most important. No, it more often looks like self-sufficiency. I can handle it. I can do it on my own. 
You know, I know what's best for my family. Or self-determination. I have to clean myself up first. I'll, I'll just take care of it myself. Well, nobody else was doing it, so somebody had to do it. Even more subtly, maybe it just looks like entitlement. You don't know all the things I've been through. I deserve this. I, I've just felt so unappreciated that I need to do something good for me. Embracing these subtle thoughts, again, is only setting us up for the harsh reality of the judgment of the great day. And I don't want you to find out then when it's too late that your faith was an illusion. We must contend against pride today. Or it will just further spiral out of control, become much more, our gloom, dark gloominess will become more evident to those all around us, as we see in verse 7, where Jude warns us we must contend against lust. Let's read that one more time. He says in verse 7, Judgment is coming, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah have kind of a bad reputation in the Bible and in church history, as depraved, licentious, perverted people who have earned God's swift judgment by hailstones of fire coming down on them. But before that happened, they received much grace from God. They were vibrant, prosperous cities. They, the cities were placed in the most lush, fertile parts of the land of Canaan. God had been really good to these people. People whom Genesis 13 describes as wicked, great sinners against the Lord. They abused God's grace. How were they wicked, great sinners against the Lord? Well, Jude tells us they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Which kind of clarifies the contemporary debate where some people who would like to defend homosexual practice argue that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't homosexuality, it was actually a lack of hospitality. See, they just weren't nice to the people that came to visit them. And that's why God destroyed them. But Jude is quite clear here. The great sin was sexual immorality. Specifically, they pursued unnatural desire. This is what same language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 1. As, again, Jake said in Sunday school. Good work together this week, Jake. Paul says, speaking of homosexuality, that they exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. A man pursuing a man, a woman pursuing a woman. This is rebellion against God. This is the judgment of God. It is the final evidence that they have given themselves over to unbelief and pride, putting themselves on the throne and not trusting God's design. And so Jude reminds us again that God punishes sin utterly. They were punished by fire from the sky. Jude calls it eternal fire. Because even in their day, multiple different historians of that day reported that the sites, the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah, still continued to give sulfurous smoke. 
2,000 years later, it was still burning. And this is an example, Jude says, of the eternal fire that awaits those who give themselves over to their sensual passions. But again, this isn't an opportunity for us to just look at them and say, well, I'm not like that. I'm not as bad as those people. Because the seed of those sins already exists in our hearts as doubt and pride. We might marvel at how quickly our culture has spiraled out of control in the last 10 years with this mess of sexual identity and gender dysphoria issues. But as Jake was pointing out earlier, the seeds of this moment were sown so long ago. Doubt in God's good design turns into pride in de determining my own values and my own identity. And that doubt and pride always, always turns into lust. Lustful sensuality where we just indulge our own fleshly pleasures. We give in to our own passions and pervert God's design. And for some, the result is homosexuality or transgenderism. But for many, most others, perhaps it's just lustful entertainment through movies or private use of pornography or engaging in a hookup culture Maybe not so sexually related. It's the obsession with fashion and shopping or my inability to moderate my own eating. Just giving in to the lustful messages of culture and not knowing when to say no. Hearing the lustful message of safety and comfort proclaimed by our culture. Lust is turning all of God's good gifts into a perverse pursuit of private pleasure. A perverse pursuit of private pleasure. We can't marvel that the culture has lost its way when the church has allowed it to happen by promoting cheap grace. We narrow the gospel down to this idea of just personal forgiveness. A personal relationship with Jesus, just me and him. We allow sins to continue in the name of tolerance. Can't we all just get along with one another? We hand over authority to institutions outside the church to define for us what it means to live for Christ. And we promote pride and sensuality ourselves when we make church all about getting our own needs met, about satisfying our own style preferences, seeking comfort and safety above the mission or striving for personal fulfillment by building up my family and my career, or trying to appeal to the feelings of the culture so that they think, oh, Christians, they're pretty cool too. Maybe I'll listen to them. Trying to tell people, we're not a threat to your personal interests and desires. We want to build you up. We are a threat. The gospel is a threat to our natural desires. We must contend for the faith. So how do we do so? What do we do in response to God's grace towards us? Let me finish this morning with one warning and two encouragements that call us to remember, as Jude tells us right at the beginning in verse 5. Which one applies to you, the judgment or the encouragement, depends on what comes out of your own personal self-examination. 
All three of these examples are given to remind us of who Jesus is and how we relate to him. Jude says, Jesus is the God who executed all these Old Testament judgments. Did you catch that in verse 5? Jesus called the people out of Israel and punished those who did not believe. Nobody can say, well, I like Jesus, but that God of the Old Testament, I'm a little uncomfortable with that guy. Jude says, is the same God. So the question Jude is posing for us in our self-examination is not, have I sinned? Of course you have. Or not even, how spectacularly have I sinned? Because we see that even the most subtle of sins will lead to judgment. The right question you must ask yourself is, do I believe Jesus is the king who will judge sinners and purify his church? Have I humbly submitted to King Jesus to embrace his call on my life and contend for the faith on his gospel mission? Am I fooling myself saying I'm a Christian, but really what my engagement with the church is is just about satisfying my own fleshly desires, and earthly comforts. If you are pretending, Jude is calling you to remember that Jesus judges the unfaithful, the prideful, the lustful. These words paint a terrible picture of destruction and gloomy darkness, eternal fire for rebelling against the holiness of our glorious eternal King. These words are meant to shake us As Jesus said in Matthew 7, to warn us that we won't be those who come to him on the final day and say, oh Lord, I'm so glad I made it. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Don't let subtle sins lull you into disastrous ignorance of your soul's true condition. Don't be deceived into thinking that you're not that bad. And you go to church, so you're probably okay. Recognize the ugliness of sin, even the subtle ones, and repent and surrender your life completely to Jesus. Have it all. And if you have surrendered to Jesus, then I have two encouragements for you. First, remember that your judgment was laid on Christ. His death on the cross paid for every subtle and spectacular sin. The darkness, the destruction, and the punishment that you deserve laid on him. It's all gone. If you find sin in your life, the answer isn't to think about it more and ponder it so you can stop it and come up with strategies to stop it. The answer is to look to Jesus. Remember Jesus. Trust that his sacrifice was sufficient to pay for that sin. Trust that his resurrection guarantees you victory over that sin. And remember that the difference between you and a world that indulges in fleshly desires is not that you are smarter or more determined or more careful or more self-controlled or more faithful or more humble. The difference is simply that God was merciful to you in Christ. And you don't have to let Satan whisper those doubts into your ears any longer. And don't let pride convince you that you are too sinful to be saved or that you are able to overcome it in your own strength. Just surrender it to Jesus and remember that your sin is completely washed away by his blood 
and he's placed you in a family of blood-bought people who are here to help contend against your sins alongside of you. Finally, we look to the future. Jude wants us to remember that this past judgment is simply a type, a pointer to a future judgment to come when everything is going to be made right. We will finally get the justice we long for. Until then, we're contending against Satan and all of his influence in this world. It's going to be a nasty fight. It's going to be an exhausting fight. Jesus said in the same Sermon on the Mount, others will revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. But we are to remember that it will come to an end. And one day he will receive you into his kingdoms, into his, his kingdom, into his arms, saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Not because you were so great at contending against your sins, but because he was so great to contend for you that you may inherit eternal life. So let's bow our heads in prayerful surrender to that victorious contender. God, help us not to take sin lightly, but to weed it out. Not by becoming those who, who point at each other all of our faults and who, who argue with one another and cast doubt on one another. God, we don't contend in that way. We contend by lifting Jesus before one another and say, run, run to him, brother and sister. Run to him who has contended for us. Run to him who has taken the judgment for us. God, we, we long to be free from all the oppression of this life. But we thank you that we are at first freed from the oppression of Satan and the oppression of sin in our hearts, that we can contend until the day when all things are made new, when the blind will receive their sight, when the dead will come to life, when sickness will be gone, when sorrow and tears will be wiped away. Help us remain faithful until that glorious day when we praise Jesus face to face. Amen.